so this week as we were getting ready for worship, we noticed something common about these two readings from Isaiah and from Luke. They're 800 years apart, but they start out with two pretty ordinary guys doing their everyday ordinary thing, and then it doesn't go as they expect. For Isaiah... I'm not quite sure what constitutes an ordinary day in the temple, but that day ended up not being ordinary at all. The temple suddenly was filled with the robes of God. Seraphs, which are not the cute little cherubs from Renaissance painters. These are terrifying creatures flying around with six wings, crying, singing, Earthquake pivots on the thresholds, shaking the whole temple and the whole place filled with smoke. And all Isaiah can do is say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And then 800 years later, Peter is doing what he does every day, which he's a fisherman. He, he fishes for fish, right? <laughs> and he's not had much luck on this particular day. And then something unusual happens. A traveling rabbi asks if he can stand in his boat to preach. And so Peter lets him do it. And he can't help but listen as he's washing his nets and putting them away for the day. And then this rabbi asks him to put his nets out for a a catch, and Peter, a little reluctantly maybe, agrees. And there's such an enormous catch of fish that it almost swamps two boats. And Peter's immediate response is, Go away, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Both Peter and Isaiah have basically the same response. What's that about? I think it's about being human and being honest about what happens when we're illuminated by the holy. For Isaiah, being in the presence of the seraphim and all the glory of God shaking the stones of the temple, he is overcome by how small and insignificant and unworthy he feels in the dazzling light of all that goodness, all that glory, all that pure, unadulterated love. And it was a different scene for Peter, but I have to think that while he was listening to Jesus preach, he must have been thinking, whoa, this is good, right? <laughs> And then he has this miraculous catch of fish, and he realizes not only is this good, but this is holy. And he's overcome by his own unworthiness in the presence of someone who is so good and so holy. So there's a word in Hebrew for this this feeling. Uh, In the Hebrew Bible, It's translated sometimes as glory, uh, sometimes as presence. Uh, The word is kavod, or it can also be transliterated kavod. And it comes from a root word that means 
heavy, weighty. It might have come from a military term for, for heavy armaments. And while in casual use, it can mean heavy or respect or distinction, in connection to the presence of God, it means being in the overwhelming, luminous presence of pure love, the very presence of the divine. I've had a couple of moments, maybe, in my life like this, and maybe you have too, where I'm suddenly overwhelmed by the glory and the grace and the love of God, and it's brilliant, and there's also a weight to it, a heaviness almost. I mean, I'm amazed and blessed to know how loved I am, but sometimes all I can see is how much I don't deserve it, right? With Mary Oliver, I want to say I am so distant from the hope of myself. All I can see is how I've failed to live up to what I believe God's called me to do. Maybe you too have had this experience, a time when you remember glory, when you remember the kavod and how you felt. You might have read about uh, the Norwegian film that's coming out called The Worst Person in the World. It's on everybody's short list of top 10 films for 2021. Uh, The title, The Worst Person in the World, is a nod to the grand Norwegian tradition of self-deprecation, in which someone who who fails at even the most menial task uh, self-flagellates and pronouncings themselves Oh, I am the worst person in the world. I cut the shellfish wrong or something. Uh, For those of us who grew up in the Midwest, which is full of people from uh, the Scandinavian countries, this is our heritage. (laughs) If you used to listen to Prairie Home Companion, they are not exaggerating. This is is what the Midwest is like. People saying, oh, I am the worst person in the world. My beloved has been known... When someone gushes enthusiastically and eloquently over her transcendent pies, she has to go, well, the crust isn't really as flaky as it should be. Because it's not. (laughs) It's exploding in our mouths. It's like, "Eh, could be be better. It could be better. That's the Midwest line. It could be better. (laughs) This reflex this automatic reflex of I'm not as good as I could be or I'm the worst person in the world is even more pronounced not only when someone's complimenting on you on your pie but is even more pronounced when you're in the face of ultimate goodness capital U ultimate capital G goodness all we can see is that I'm not good, capital G. Maybe not even good, small g. There's a social psychologist named Dali Shug who wrote the book, The Person You Mean to Be, and she was interviewed by Harvard Law School's program on negotiation this last week. And she talks about how being a virtuous person, a good person with a capital G and a capital P, 
how that's impossible because it's based on the way so many of us define what it is to be a good person. It's defined so narrowly. Someone who never makes mistakes, someone who doesn't have even a whiff of any of the isms, racism, sexism, homophobia, ageism, ableism, anything like that. She says that trying to do everything right all the time makes us brittle. It destroys our, our flexibility and our creativity. When we fall short, or even worse, when someone else points out that we've fallen short, and that always is terrible, we automatically get defensive because we identify ourselves as a good person. Or if we don't get defensive on the outside, we get super self-critical on the inside and we automatically go to, oh, I'm the worst person in the world. And we mean it. So Chug suggests that this is partly because we've set up a binary. There's good and there's bad and there's not anything else in between. And she suggests that, what, that what's helpful is to stop trying to be good in a capital G existential binary sort of way and instead focus on being what she calls good-ish. <laughs> She doesn't mean to, to give up on, what, on our goals or to just abandon being decent people in the world, but she says when we make mistakes, instead of focusing on defending ourselves because we're really a good person, or taking it in and having it shatter our, our own identities, instead saying, okay, that wasn't good, and it's a moment for me to integrate that and see what I can work on in myself so that next time I'll be more good-ish. She suggests that we consider ourselves works in progress toward being good. So in other words, she sees being good as a road towards goodness. It's a journey, an evolution, a growth, a maturing. Uh, not a, a static existential binary category. You're either good or you're ungood. As a young evangelical, I was taught in binaries. I was good or evil. I was saved or unsaved. I was a member of the elect or I was unelect. And my operating way of life was living under this great fear of finding out that I was not in the right category and I would be punished forever. It was discovering in college about John Wesley's concept of sanctification. This is for those of you who are new to Methodism. Uh, the founder of Methodism had a, a fancy word called sanctification. Which, uh, a, a word for, for gradually growing deeper and more mature in our faith and in our relationship with God. You don't suddenly transform from ungood to good. You grow every day more and more, and you stutter and fall back into what he called the mind of Christ. That, that was a revelation for me, a huge sense of 
relief and freedom and permission to risk and grow. And so when Peter and Isaiah, in their own way, experience uh, God's kavod in the temple or God's kavod in Jesus' teaching and miracles, they exclaim almost in unison, woe is me, get away from me, Lord, I'm not good enough. I'm the worst person in the world. I'm the worst person in the world, that's right. They're stuck in a binary, either good or bad, either in or out. But God's not in that binary, and Jesus isn't in that binary. There's more to us than the fact that we've not lived up to expectations or possibilities from the past. God sees what Isaiah can become and what we can become. And Jesus sees what Peter can become. Isaiah and and Peter are both challenged to use the skills that they have, speaking and fishing, and grow them and deepen them and help them use them for God's holy purposes in the world, even if they are not good people all the time. Here's how God let Isaiah know that he didn't need to be stuck in that binary. Here's Isaiah, he's, he's overwhelmed in the presence of the kabod, and he's worried about, of all things, his unclean lips. And the seraphim bring a coal to blot out his sin and guilt. He's burned away in a spiritual sense. And then he hears a call. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And with his newly charred lips, I hope he had Vaseline with him. (laughs) Isaiah is all in. Here I am. Send me. And he goes on to bear God's message to a stiff-necked population of Judahites challenging them to live better, comforting them in what would become an exile, speaking of the coming of the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one who would save God's people. And then 800 years later, Peter, who suddenly discovers that he has someone who sounds a lot like the Messiah in his boat and fully expects to be castigated for his sins, Instead, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. Jesus says to him, essentially, take all the skills you know from being a fisherman, not the least of which is patience, right? And transform them toward God's holy purposes. Let down your nets and follow me. So both Isaiah and Peter are met where they are in their own awareness of their sinfulness and their unworthiness, and they're forgiven, and that's not the end of the story. They're freed from their sin and guilt, and they're freed from that binary that traps them. They're also freed for the power of love. They're freed for God's good purposes in the world. They're freed for being part of God making the world 
a whole and holy place. So in a sense, God is saying to Isaiah, and Jesus is saying to Peter, even though you're not a finished product, I want you. I want your heart to love the world more like I do. I want your hands to care for this fragile green creation. I want your voice to share with others what you have experienced in me. I want you. And that's the message from God to us as well. And so the part of you that when you're in the presence of the holy clenches and hides and recoils and wants to say, oh no, not me. Can you sense that even then Jesus is calling you, offering his hand and bringing you up to your feet and saying to you, do not be afraid. I see you. I want you with all that you are. And then saying to you, be part of this faith with me. Let me use your brokenness to make you whole and to make the world more whole. Be part of my healing the world. So we've got homework for you this week. If you are worried that you're not good enough to be used by God, you're not smart enough, you're not whole enough, you're not whatever enough, and we all have a laundry list of what we're not enough of. I think God says in a sense, get over it. Let down your nets. Hear these words from Jesus when he says to Peter, he's saying it to you. Don't be afraid. Let down your nets. Follow me. Hear the words of Isaiah to you. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Not on your own but as a beloved child of God, you can answer, here am I, send me. Amen. Our next hymn is in the black, Faith We Sing, and it's number 2137, Would I Have Answered When You Called? <laughs> 